I think they found their way. Let's open in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you're paying attention, that's a passage we were in last time we were in this series together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as we come back to our series on the Holy Spirit, and we come back to this enormous passage, and that's why we have to spend more than one week on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is enormous in content, certainly. It's got a lot packed into these 16 verses. But it's also enormous in its importance and relevance to our series on the Holy Spirit. Last time we were in this passage, we looked at basically a survey of it. We looked at pretty much the chunk of the whole passage and saw what it said to be about the Holy Spirit. This evening, we will zero in to verses 10 through 13, which I find to be one of the most profound sections in all of the Bible on the doctrine of pneumatology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Let's read these verses as we come to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, where it says, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man, which is in him? And I want you to pause before we keep reading and notice the capital and not capitalized words, spirit and spirit there, reflected in verses 10 and verse 11, a capital letter reflecting the Holy Spirit, a lowercase reflecting truly the spirit of man, which is in him. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit, capital S, of God. Now... We have received not the spirit, lowercase s, of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we may know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I'm sure that you have all seen all kinds of well-meaning t-shirts and merchandise and Christian paraphernalia that say, Jesus saves. You've seen those? I'm sure you have. All kinds of them. And they're well-meaning, and I don't have really any problem with that. But the more deeply we think about salvation, and the more carefully we consider them in terms of the Trinity, if we are going to see salvation with any depth or insight the more we must understand it in terms of each member of the Trinity. It is not just that Jesus saves. It is also that God the Father saves and God the Spirit saves, though we don't see as much of that kind of paraphernalia. There is one God who exists in three persons, And each person of the Trinity is our Savior. They all work together in perfect unity of purpose and enterprise. Many preachers put it this way. I'm not original to me. The Father thought it, the Son bought it, and the Spirit wrought it. That was a pretty clever one. There's others, right? The Father is the architect, one preacher said. The Son is the accomplisher, The Spirit is the applier. There's still another one, so stay with me. The Father planned it, the Son purchased it, and the Spirit procured it. The verses before us focus on the third member of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit, as you knew that as you came to this series. You should know that's our focus. It has been well said that the Spirit, however, 
is the forgotten member of the Godhead. He is often ignored, often overlooked, but certainly not overlooked in Scripture. Even as I've been digging into this series on the Holy Spirit, I've noted how much confusion there is regarding the Holy Spirit. And I have to chuckle to myself because, at least in this man's mindset, I would say, anytime someone's confused about matters of theology, they seemingly just throw it in the Holy Spirit bucket. Because it's almost like the bucket we don't understand, so we'll just kind of throw all the stuff we don't understand into. And that is certainly not fair to the scriptural record. Lest we be guilty of superficial understanding of salvation, we must give ourselves to scriptural thought even as it pertains to matters of the Holy Spirit. We should desire to have deep and large thoughts of this so great salvation that has come to us. The passage before us in 1 Corinthians 2 is one of the most important passages in the Bible concerning the work of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of sinners. But this is not a new truth to be introduced in the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, as we come to chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, there has already been, by way of implication, the teaching of the Holy Spirit's ministry reflected in this book, and we're only in chapter 2. If we had time, we would have made our way to chapter 2 through chapter 1. And as we went through chapter 1, we would have seen implications of the Holy Spirit's work in the ministry of salvation. For example... In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, there you have it, right there in the second verse. You are called to be saints. Called by whom, we have to ask. In verse 9, it says, called into the fellowship of his son. In the same chapter, chapter 1, verse 24, but to those who are called, he's using this word. Again, in verse 26, consider your, notice it there, calling brothers. Who is the one who summons lost sinners into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Answer, the Holy Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God who does the calling and the summoning and the drawing of those who are separated from God. It is, the, it is implicit then that the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing the calling whereby we become known as the called. If the Holy Spirit did not perform his work or his office of calling, no sinner would be saved. But the Holy Spirit did do that work of calling, whereby many in this room listening can say, I have been called, I've been saved. Later in the same book, Paul expressly states, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Even the preaching of the gospel and the witness and the testimony that we bear must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is finally mentioned in this book explicitly. I shouldn't say finally because it's only chapter 2. But in chapter 2, it says in verse 4, And my speech and my message were not in the plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit, capital S, and of power. The Spirit of God so orchestrates the conversation of those who come to faith in Christ that he works not only as the one who is lost, but also in the one who is saved to bring the message of salvation to bear in the heart and mind and life of that lost person. Verse 5 of chapter 2. So that your faith, this is why I can tell you that the Holy Spirit's been at work, Paul is saying, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, beginning in chapter 2, verse 10, we come 
to a more detailed explanation of what it is that the Holy Spirit does in the work of salvation. And what we see is that the role of the Holy Spirit is to purposefully and specifically reveal the message of the gospel, both to the writers of the scripture as well as to those who are listening to the message that was written down by the writers of scripture. And so, by way of introduction, I want to ask you a simple question. Do you think of salvation as a work of the entire Trinity? Do you think of salvation in that profound way? Do you think of the salvation as a work of the entire Godhead? Do you see its intricate operation as a result of all three members of the Godhead? It would be very limited to think of salvation only as Jesus saves. And it almost sounds irreverent to say that. It is incumbent upon the work of salvation that the Father and the Spirit also be emphasized because Scripture also places the emphasis there. Now, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10-13, through 13, our goal is simply to understand these verses. Be enriched by these verses, be edified by these verses, be sanctified by these verses, as we seek to do, as the title suggests, define the Spirit's work. Now, I trust that you could, as good students of God's Word, define the Son's work and define the Father's work. And, and perhaps we could do that in other series, as though I would say we, we already have as we look through uh, the names and titles of Christ, and we already have as we looked even through the Godhead and His names. What this sermon has done is in the Holy Spirit series, we need to define what does the Spirit do? Lest we, as many have done, fall prey into, anytime we're confused about something when it comes to theology, just throw it into the Holy Spirit bucket. There has to be a primary defining work, and we have to totally understand what that is. And I have to ask you, if pressed tonight, could you tell me what is it that the Holy Spirit chiefly does? That's an important consideration as we look at this text together. Number one, the revelation of the Spirit. Beginning in verse 10, Paul makes a very declarative and indicative statement. And by the way, these headings, there will be four of them, all kind of build up, we could say, the four pillars, the four corners that will define the structure upon which we rest the Spirit. And Paul now gives us a primary and a secondary aspect of the Spirit's work of revelation that will help formulate a biblically informed definition of the Spirit. And what he says in this text is that primarily the Spirit's revelation speaks to the Spirit's work of revealing the Scriptures. Paul begins by saying this in verse 10. For to, notice the word, us. The us refers primarily to Paul and the apostles. The us would be synonymous with the we that you see in verses 6 and 7. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So the mature, in verse 6, is referring to the believers. The we, in verse 6, refers to the apostolic preachers of the word. And in verse 7, Paul repeats that theme when he says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. We, the apostolic preachers, Paul and the other apostles. And so, primarily, 
The us in verse 10 refers not to the collective believers, it refers to specifically Paul and the other apostles. Say, why spend so much time there? We'll see that in a second. But secondarily, this revelation speaks to the Spirit's work of illuminating the Scriptures. I refer you to the direct antecedent, which is the last line of verse 9. The last line of verse 9, those who love him, that is also included in the us. It is not simply the apostles of the, holy, of the first century, but also those who come to love Christ through the witness that was recorded by the apostles in Scripture. Verse 10, chapter 2, God revealed something. Primarily, that revelation speaks to his revelation of the scriptures, and secondarily, it speaks to the Spirit's now work of illuminating that same scripture that the apostles recorded. Notice that God is the one who took the initiative. Verse 10, God revealed them. It is God who acted first. It is God who pulled back the veil. It is God who made known. This is a part of the saving work of God the Father. God, verse 10, is differentiated from the Holy Spirit here and is understood to be God the Father revealed them. God revealed them. Now the word revealed is a very strong word. It means to make something known that could not otherwise have been known to man. In other words, if God did not reveal this, we would never have known them. God must communicate. God must disclose. God must reveal them. Now, what is the them in verse 10? The them, here it refers back to the things noted in verse 9. Look at verse 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love them. What is the them? These are the truths concerning the salvation through the crucified Son of God. That is the wisdom and power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Were we to stand, be, be merely be historical observers, rather, and stand there at the hillside of Golgotha and just be historical observers of the death of Jesus Christ, were we simply to stand there and see him suffer and bleed, our conclusion would have been the same as all the other people who observed the death of Christ. Remember, there was a lot of people that would have seen this. Scripture makes a point of noting that only two accepted him as their Lord. One was on, him, on the cross with, next to him, and the other a Roman soldier. The others all observed that. And we would have assumed that this would be a simply another Jew who died on a cross. Historians tell us that Josephus specifically, that so many Jewish men were crucified during this time period by the Roman Empire that they actually initially would hang, crucify them on the walls of the city until they ran out of room on the walls and began to use the hillsides. That's how many were crucified. And if we were observers, silent observers, just historically, we would have said, it's just another Jew who died. We would never have known. This was the Prince of Life dying upon the cross, except God reveal that truth to us. 
He would never have known that in that death he was bearing our sins and our iniquities in his body upon the Christ. We needed more than physical eyes. We needed spiritual eyes. We needed the spiritual truth revealed and made known. And if we had lived 10,000 lives and studied and researched the great libraries of the world, we still would have not come to this conclusion lest God reveal it to us. The fact that we can understand this has then nothing to do with our IQ, does it? It's nothing to do with our privileged upbringing. It's nothing to do with our educational level. If it did, only smart, privileged people would be saved. In reality, the truth that God must be our Savior is initiated and made known to us by God. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us, that's the Father, and the Father revealed to us using whose instrumentality? Through the Spirit. So God revealed the saving work of Christ by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is God's great revealer of gospel truth. Now this is done in a two-fold manner that I want you to see. It was done, really, first of all, by the apostles. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 says this, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man in other generations, has now been revealed to his holy apostles by the Spirit. Ephesians 3, verses 4 and 5. That has been previous things that, that which has previously been unknown, the Old Testament, regarding the full significance of these prophecies, signs, and types, has now been made known to us first through a small group of men called the apostles. God made it known to them so that they would record scripture, in Scripture what the Spirit had revealed to them. And this is the meaning when God's household, is Ephesians 2 verse 19, it says God's household should be built up upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Why are we built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Because the Spirit's work of revelation is done first foundationally, amongst these men. These are the foundational layers. They played an important role once and for all. There are no apostles today. They are restricted to the foundational ministry of laying it for the household of God. That's what they did. And it was done second to all believers. Matthew 11, verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Peter, I think, stands as the prototype believer in this regard. When Jesus said to him in Matthew 16, after Peter said to Jesus, you are the Son of God, do you remember what Jesus said back to Peter after Peter said, you are the Christ? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. In that context, it refers to those essentials that are necessary for saving faith. That's what you knew. This is the revelation of the Spirit. The fact that you and I are believers in Jesus is because of the inward ministry of the Spirit of God illuminating and enlightening our hearts regarding the truths of our sin and His saving power. Unless we be guilty of a superficial understanding of salvation, we need to acknowledge if you've been saved, there's been a testimony you could speak to right now. You know what that's like. 
What humility there should be in each of our hearts that we did not discover this. We did not invent this. We did not figure this out. It was made known. It is the Holy Spirit of God who must cause the truth of the Word of God to be lucid and clear in our minds and hearts. By the way, if this does not give you concrete foundations in your gospel witness, nothing will. I don't know how many times people will say, well, I, I don't know if I can you know, be an evangelist for Christ. After all, I'm not you know, super well-spoken, or I'm more, you know, I'm more reserved in my personality. I don't know if God can use me. Friend, that's exactly the point. When Paul said God loves to use simple things to confound the wise, you just give the word of God, you leave the convicting of God to God the Spirit. That should give us motivation in our gospel witness. If nothing else, we can know that when I expound the word of God and I go out and I share the gospel with others, I have full confidence in the promises of Isaiah that God's word will never return unto him void. Why? Because this is what the Holy Spirit's alive to do. He, he reveals. But how can he possibly do that? I mean, that's a pretty noble calling. What are the qualifications of the Spirit? And beginning in the middle of verse 10, Paul now explains why the Spirit alone is qualified to be the revealer of truth. And notice the word that begins the second half of verse 10. For, it says. The word for is always there to give an explanation, reason, or purpose for what just has been said. Paul's writings are filled with pithy, half-sentence explanations like this. If you read them, you'll see, well, because of this, he's always trying to make sure you fully understand. For, this is why, the Spirit searcheth all things. This is the explanation of why it is that the Spirit is the revealer of these gospel truths to us. And the reason is very clear. How come the Holy Spirit is the revealer? Because, you could say, for... The Spirit reveals all things, or searches all things. This is the statement of omniscience. The word omniscience means all-knowing. This is why we believe in two important truths regarding the Holy Spirit that we've already talked about in this series. We believe in the personality of the Spirit. When I say personality, I mean that the Holy Spirit possesses all the distinctives of, the, of a person. The Holy Spirit has a mind has feelings, has a will. A tree, rock, or computer does not have any of those things. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. And we believe in the deity or the divinity of the Holy Spirit. He is God. Because it is only God who can know all things. And in these few words, the Spirit searches all things is a clear testimony of the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing outside of the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. He knows all things as they are, and he knows all things as they have been. He knows all things as they will be. And please note the verb tense. He searches all things. That's a present tense. It's very important. That is to say... In the present tense, the Spirit of God always, always, always knows all things. That's what he's saying. There's never a progression of acquiring knowledge for the Holy Spirit. He didn't get a kindergarten diploma, right? 
as he graduated from kindergarten after five years. I, I always think that one, that, that's kind of a funny one. I don't know why. You, you get a kindergarten graduation when you're five, but then you've got to wait till you're 18 to get your next one. I don't know. That's just how it works, but it, it's a lot of fun. He doesn't have any diplomas because he didn't need to graduate from anything, right? He is not growing to know something in the present he didn't already know. In the present tense, the Spirit of God always knows all things. Searches does not mean the Spirit inquires matters or discovering something new. Instead, it simply means that every moment of every day, of every point, in all time, he knows everything. Even, it says, even, in case you weren't sure of how much he knew, even the depths of God. But this refers to the mysteries of God which had not otherwise been made known. Have you met, heard about mysteries in, in Paul's writings? He celebrates mysteries. That, that would be kind of a fun theme. Oh, we should do that for VBS, kind of the mysteries of God. Oh, that's right, we're doing that this year. We're going to do a, a, a VBS kind of detective theme. And you could just use Paul's writings to help you build that theme out because Paul is always talking about these things that were previously unknown that have now been made known. You ever been surprised by something? Sure you have. You're human. Has the Holy Spirit ever been surprised? Never. The Bible makes a distinctive between then two types of revelation. There is what we could call general revelation, things that are generally known to all men. I can generally walk outside, as we mentioned this morning, and I can see trees and stars and all that, and I can generally reveal that, and I can see, wow, this is pretty amazing. But then there's special revelation, and this is made known only to a lesser few. We could describe them better in these two ways. General revelation is what we know about God through creation and through history. It's a testimony to the existence of God and something of the character of God. You can look at the sky above, for instance, and learn something about its maker. But that sky won't tell you about a savior, will it? It'll point you to one. What you need is special revelation. And special revelation is the only way to really know God. It is special because it is the revelation of the saving knowledge of the gospel of Christ that is necessary for salvation. So when Paul says, even the depths of God, he is not referring to general revelation, is he? He's referring to special revelation. It's the only the Holy Spirit who knows the true teaching of God. Only the Holy Spirit can mediate that truth to us, reveal it to us, make it known to us. Because, for, the Spirit knows all truth, the Spirit knows all reality, the Spirit knows all doctrine. The Spirit knows all the affairs of providence. There is nothing outside the omniscience of the Holy Spirit. Nothing catches the Spirit unaware. Nothing catches the Spirit off guard. He's here right now. You ever heard that? I saw someone tweet even the other day, and they're correct. You shouldn't pray as you start a worship service that the Holy Spirit would come to be with us. It's His service. <laughs> He's there. No mere man can be our teacher. No mere man can explain to us how to be saved. And I hope you understand that. And here's why I want you to understand that. No mere man can meet these qualifications. Some would say, and, and it's sad, and it happens, but I want to prepare you. Say, well, I, I learned some amazing things from this heralded teacher, and they were very helpful to me. But then that same teacher rejected everything he taught me. Does that make the truth wrong? 
No, because I'm not there to listen to that man, am I? I'm listening to what God's Spirit says through God's Word. Unless we be guilty of a superficial understanding of the work of grace, we need to understand that this is the only qualified one. So let's illustrate it. And that's what Paul does. Number three, the illustration of the Spirit. In verse 11, Paul gives an illustration of how all this works, in case you weren't already confused, because this is a pretty major doctrine. And so it's, it's helpful, as any good teacher would do, just say, all right, it's time to take a breath, right? We just went through, like, some major stuff. Everybody, you know, let me just kind of show it. It's like, I always appreciated the science teachers that showed us all the things in the textbook and then let us blow something up. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and I learned something from them. And so Paul says, here's, here's a great big doctrinal truth, and you can imagine him jotting it all down on his chalkboard, and then he says, okay, now let's do some chalk art. Let's, let's illustrate this for a little bit. And he begins by asking a rhetorical question. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit, small s, of the person which is in him? Here's a good question, right? sitting next to you, even if you're married. Now, some of you guys are married, so you probably could do this better than others, okay? But the person next to you, can you know everything that that person is thinking? No. no that's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Who else, who can know someone's thoughts except for the person, except for that person who can know? The answer is no one. I even put this in my notes because I knew this would happen, right? There's Ron. <laughs> I put it in my notes. And I knew he was going to sit right there. So I said, Ron is sitting right here. Thank you, Ron. You helped me out. <laughs> and I cannot know what Ron is thinking, can I? Diana's going to have a better guess because they're married. But he, she, even Diana at times is confused. Aren't you, Diana? <laughs> <laughs> now, none of us know what's in the depths of someone else's mind except the spirit, small s, of that man. That person, if it's Ron, must be the initiator of telling us what they're thinking. That's why spouses, they might not know everybody what the other spouse is thinking, but they can at least know when their spouse is thinking about something, right? You know what I'm talking about. And then you ask, what are you thinking about? And as it relates to the mind of God, this is the illustration, that is so exponentially over and beyond us that none of us could ever know what God is thinking, can we? can't know what God is thinking. We are confined within a box. We can't leap outside that box. God is outside that box. We cannot know what's on, that, on the outside. We can't know God's thinking. And so, God must, from the outside of the box, initiate to those of us that are on the inside of the box. And here's his illustration. So also... No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit, capital S, of God. How could we possibly know the deep things of God? How could we possibly know the genius which is articulated in the mind of God? The Holy Spirit alone knows the mind of God. Brigham Young does not know the mind of God. Muhammad does not know the mind of God. I grew up in New Hampshire. Mary Baker Eddy does not know the mind of God. It's actually Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, and I think there was about 10 more people she was married to at one point. No other false teacher knows the mind of God. They don't have a clue. Only the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. The Holy Spirit reveals to us 
the mind of God in the record of the written word of God. That is why we emphasize the Bible. That is why we come to Faith Baptist Church, you hear the preaching of the word of God. Because the preaching of the word of God and the reading of the word of God is the conduit by which we can hear God speaking to us. That is why when I enter into the pulpit, I did not tell you God spoke to me this morning or God told me to tell you this. That is why we confine ourselves to the witness and testimony of the apostles as recorded in Scripture because they are the foundation upon which every true church rests. Not some dream that Joseph Smith had or whatever supposed fantasy some other religious leader had. Only the Spirit. That's the illustration. And so that leads us finally to the inspiration of the Spirit. And Paul now narrows his focus to this revelation that was put onto paper and recorded to be written in the Word and written as the very Word of God. Notice carefully the words Paul uses. Now we have. The we, this time, refers to all believers, but principally it refers to who? The apostles. We have not, he's saying, the apostles, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. Paul is saying that we, they have not, the apostles have not received a secular worldview that places man at the center of the universe and everything else revolves around man. That is the spirit of the world. The world worships the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. That's what they worship. And the world promotes the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man, and they are the chief. They just, it's all about them. But Paul states explicitly, we did not receive that spirit, did we? We have received instead the spirit which is from God. This is the spirit who is the revealer of sound doctrine and the way of salvation, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, these things that pertain to our salvation, these things that contain Christ and him crucified. This is the perfect time, then, to emphasize a point of doctrine we introduced at the beginning of this sermon. It is not that God gave his son to die on a cross for our sins alone. God must also give the Holy Spirit if we are understand what Christ had done for us in his death. Apart from the Holy Spirit, the Bible remains a closed book full of mysteries shouted, shout, uh, shrouded rather in enigmas. That's what the Bible would be. Which things, he says in verse things, verse 13, which things we also speak? The full counsel of God, which has been made known to Paul, he has now speaks the entirety of that revelation to those who have the Spirit. Not, verse 13, in the words taught by human wisdom. Not that way. The human wisdom refers to secular philosophies of the day with their dazzling rhetoric and their manipulative delivery. Not that way. But in those taught by the Spirit, the those in verse 13, goes back to the word, the word words. It refers back to those doctrines and truths revealed to us in specific words that have definitive meanings. Combining spiritual thoughts, verse 13, with spiritual words. There are some of the most challenging words, by the way, in verse 13 to interpret, so let me help you out. Many translators 
are here today, uh, translations here today are likely, however, many different renderings. As, in fact, as many translations of verse 13 and Bible translations as are in the laps today might be as many different readings of verse 13 as there may be. Let me show you what I mean. If you're reading of the NASB, it would say, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That's what you would be reading in verse 13. In verse 12, the, 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 if you have a NASB, you'll note that, the, that thoughts... And the words thoughts and the words words in verse 12 are in italics in the NASB, which is the honesty of the translators. They are not in the original, but have been supplied by the translator in order to try and fill in our gaps of understanding. I appreciate italics because they help me know that that's not what's actually there. They're, they're there. And, and, and other translations do that. For example, the New King James says, comparing spiritual things with spiritual and really, that's not as far off the mark. In fact, that's very close. They're getting better. The Revised Standard Version says, interpreting spiritual truths with those to whom the Spirit, or, interpreting spiritual truth with those who the Spirit possessed, or who possess the Spirit, rather. The, the New Revised Standard says in verse 13, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The NIV says, Explaining spiritual realities with spiritual taught words. And the ESV says, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now I put them all on the screen because none of them are the same, are they? I didn't even put the King James on there because we have them in front of you in your Bibles if you wanted to look in verse 13. It says, which the Holy Ghost teacheth comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Very similar to the New King James. So what's the best translation here? Well, without going into the linguistic nuances, I believe the best way of saying it is this. Interpreting or explaining or comparing spiritual thoughts, meaning spiritual truth regarding the gospel, with or in spiritual words. Now, words is not in the original, as you can see, and that is why the King James and the ESV just say spiritual. But I think words is definitely implied in context. In the earlier verse, words is the theme. Verse 13, we impart this in words, not taught in human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Words. In fact, the other side of verse 13, it would parallel the first half of the verse. But words taught by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the divine revealer of truth, has made known to us the deep things of God by communicating, explaining, and expounding spiritual truth to us in spiritual words. Words are very important. Albert Barnes, in his Barnes commentary, put it this way. It could be restated. Explaining doctrines that pertain to the Spirit's teaching and influence in words that are taught by the same Spirit. Words are important to the Spirit's work of revelation. You cannot have thoughts without words, any more than you can have math without numbers. The words are critically important to communicate the thought. Again, using the illustration that he just used. How can you know the spirit of man, except for they be that, you be that person? How can you know someone's spirit? Again, we'll use our illustration. I go ask, you know, Ron, what are you thinking? And he says, And you go, use your words, man. I don't know what you're talking about. You can't communicate thoughts without words. I guess you could do it with pictures, 
But it's pretty evident that words are a clearer communication even than a hand-drawn picture. And God chose to communicate his thoughts through his words. That's why Matthew 4, verse 4 should ring all the more true. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That is why I want a translation of the English Bible, by the way, that is accurate to the original language as it possibly can. I don't want a dynamic equivalent translation. I don't want a loose translation. I don't want vague ideas. I want the words. I want the actual words as clearly as they can be put into the English language, and it is beyond me why anybody would want anything else than that. If I want to hear the Spirit of God, I want all the words. Don't take them away from me. Big picture, Paul has been criticized in verse 1 by the Corinthians because he showed up and he didn't use big words. Look again, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul's had some critics. And the critics are basically saying, you aren't like a fancy, illustrious preacher. When I came to you, brothers... Paul says, I did not come to you when I came to you, not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Paul didn't show up with the coinage of the day. He didn't come with philosophers mesmerizing vocabulary instead, which I, by the way, Paul could have done. Paul had all of the cred to be able to do that. Instead, Paul brought God's message in the very words that the Holy Spirit of God gave him to deliver them. Verse 4, my speech and my wisdom were not in the plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What this passage was meant to be, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 then, this passage was meant to be a rebuke to the Corinthians. Those in Corinth were becoming bored with talking about all the same stuff over and over. And Paul was saying, I am not come in that way. Now here's the tangential but clear application for us. You might say, well, why do we keep talking about salvation and redemption and sanctification and the gospel and the word? Why not mix it up a little bit? Why can't we introduce something more catchy? And frankly, it would be more catchy on a Sunday morning to take whatever the latest craze is of the day, whatever it is, and it's always changing, and, and come up with a, a, a series or a sermon and, and blast it out into the stratosphere and put it on our marquee outside, and we would get, I know we would, if we did the right thing, and we would get a bigger audience. We could attract a bigger crowd by being more catchy with what we're talking about behind this pulpit. And that's kind of the criticism they're giving to Paul. And Paul is saying, I don't do that because, and here's something chief, I'm not catering to you. Unless we be guilty of a superficial understanding of salvation, we must understand what we speak and what we preach is what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us in the Word. And so I can turn to a passage that some of you have heard a thousand times and say, all right, we're going to learn about David and Goliath and there should be like kind of this enthusiastic, that's awesome, I love to hear about that. I've heard about it before, but I want to hear about that some more. He has given to us spiritual thoughts and spiritual words 
There's another application. Say, why spend so much time painstakingly pouring over every word? Just move on. Because words matter, don't they? If there's going to be power in this church, it will only and ever be from the verse by verse, word by word, exposition of the word of God. In fact, for this reason, I don't love to say verse by verse, because I don't think it fully conveys what preaching ought to be. It should be word by word. Words matter. And when you come into God's house, you need to hear God's truth stated in God's words. That's what we want. As messengers of the Most High, we are not free to tamper with the message, either in what we say or how we say it. Certainly that is true for us as preachers, but it's also true for anyone else. Think about it, parents. You want your children to grow up in the love and admonition of the word? I hope you do. How in the world are we supposed to get them to love God? Maybe we need a more creative way. What we need is the word. And the word changes lives. It changes young lives. It changes old lives. It changes lives because it's a living word. And if we are going to be a church of the word, we ought also to be a people of the word. And if you want to see the Holy Spirit work, you define what he does. And this is why we preach on justification. We don't try to bring doctrine down to you and change labels. We bring you up to the mind of God and explain that. If you change the words, you change the meaning. Another way, you tamper with the meaning, you tamper with the words. Let me ask you then, as we close, do you think of the Spirit of God in this profound way? Do you think of salvation as a work of the entire Trinity? Has the Spirit of God revealed the truth of the gospel to you? Has he made you to know the core truth that Jesus came to the world to save sinners? Have you come to realize that you have no hope of heaven except by trusting in him? And the only way to say Jesus is Lord is by the inworking of the Holy Spirit in your heart to mind. I can only point you to Christ. I can only tell you to believe on him. But the Holy Spirit upon whom you are ultimately dependent, must entirely come to work in your life to shine a full light to the one he is at work to point to. And so I open God's word and I share God's word with you, but ultimately I leave you to God. I I turn you away from myself and I turn you to God. And my God, the Holy Spirit, give you the revelation and the illumination that you so desperately need. My prayer is the prayer of Jesus that did not want anyone to perish, but that all would come to repentance. So I will, as best I can, shotgun you with all of the words in hopes that some of those pellets would pierce your heart. And you would know that Jesus Christ came to save you and I who are sinners. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, a series on the Holy Spirit quickly becomes a series on bibliology because that's how the Holy Spirit works. And certainly 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is poignant and, and practical in that kind of explanation. 
Lord, may we not move away from the words. May we stay committed to them. May we be purified by them. May they change our lives. Lord, I'm thankful that in a room such as this, there are many who have accepted Christ as their Savior. It is our desire as we close that if there are any in this room who have never come to Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that today,